On the one hand, Balaam is a saint. He, when he prays, God speaks immediately to him and gives him clear directions. On the other hand, Balaam is a sinner. He comes at the behest of a man whose armies are arrayed against Israel. And furthermore, he teaches that man how to do more than just prophesy against Israel, but how to destroy them spiritually. Which is it? Well, we'll discuss that and more. This is number 16. I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Once again, welcome to Gospel Doctrine. I'm so happy to be with you. This is uh, a very interesting lesson. If you're a fan of Aesop, as I was when I was a kid, uh, I remember those fables very fondly, then this, the story, the structure of this story will be familiar to you because this is a pure fable. And I don't mean that in the sense that it's not true, but uh, it follows the formula of a fable very closely. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. First of all, I'd like to say, if you're new to the program, uh, I'm open to questions about past lessons, and we have some things that I'm well, uh, that you're more than welcome to bring up with me, and I can discuss with you in a later in a later episode, as that we'll get to later in the in the course of our time today. And uh, the way you do that is by emailing me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. And uh, so first, let's talk about a little bit about the man Balaam. You may remember when we talked about one of our first lessons, I, th- I believe there were three lessons on Abraham. And one of the first lessons talked about how Abraham came out of the land of Ur. And before he made it to the land of Canaan, he stopped in a city called Haran. And this is where he became a prince of peace. You may remember that. And we referred back, we've referred back numerous times to what I meant by Prince of Peace and what I think that Abraham meant by Prince of Peace. And that is where it began to happen for him. And so Abraham made a number of converts there. And he left them, some of them at least, behind. And that is where, uh, for example, Isaac and both Isaac and uh, Jacob went back to find their wives. They went back to the land of Haran. So even though they weren't part of the nation of Israel, they were followers of the same faith, the faith of the Hebrews, the same faith that Abraham believed in. So there there were, even though the Israelites were forbidden from marrying outside of their own nation, they were forbidden from marrying any Canaanites. Um, We know that from this and various other stories in the Bible, there were still faithful people that were outside of that nation. For example, Moses goes into the wilderness and he finds the family of Jethro, a Midianite, and he marries his daughter. We learn in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, the the mainstream Jewish belief is that Jethro was just a normal Midianite, and the Israelites have a war with the Midianites in this very episode, that Jethro was just another Midianite and a pagan, therefore. But we learn in the Doctrine and Covenants that Jethro held the Melchizedek priesthood. So not only did Jethro probably teach Moses what it really meant to be a Jew, but he also gave him the higher priesthood. And 
the Jewish believe that Zipporah, his daughter, would have had to convert to Judaism in order to marry Moses, but probably it was the other way around. He, Moses had to convert in order to marry Zipporah. Uh, in any case, the, the lesson is there that there are faithful followers of God and members of God's chosen people outside of the nation of Israel. And Balaam, the prophet Balaam, is one of them. So he comes from Aram, and uh, the city is mentioned in the book of Numbers. We're in Numbers chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23 and 4. And that is part of the land of Haran. So it's probable because he's a prophet and because it's reported in the Bible that he speaks directly to God and God talks right back to Balaam, it's probable that he was a member of, or the descendant of one of the members of uh, Abraham's congregation. Interesting background on on Balaam. And that isn't known for sure, but that's uh, a good guess because that's where, because it is where Abraham spent so much of his time. So what happened to Balaam? Well, the first thing that happened was The first person we hear about in this story is Balak. And Balak is the king of Moab. And the Israelites are nearing the end of their 40 years of exile in the wilderness. And they've been, quote unquote, wandering. I imagine this involved huge stretches of staying in the same place. But nevertheless, they don't put down permanent roots. They don't establish permanent settlements. And the temple is never permanently reared. It's a tabernacle. It's a tent. It's a mobile temple. So the Israelites are nearing the end of that time, and they knew in advance how long it would be. They knew it would be 40 years. And so they're closing in on Moab, which, if you look at a map, is to the east of the Dead Sea, part of present-day Jordan. And there was a people there, the Moabites and the Midianites. Well, uh, the, the king doesn't, doesn't like the fact that there's this huge nation of people who are used to hard living. And by this point, God has largely accomplished his goal with the Israelites, which is, I wanted to turn them into a people that won't be afraid when they see that there are other inhabitants in the land. They won't be afraid to do the work required to uh, acquire their promised blessings. They will actually be able to follow my commandments and have faith. So the Israelites are now a lot tougher, to put it to put it bluntly. And Balak sees these people coming into his land, and he thinks, there's no way I can stand against them. Look at their numbers, and look at how mighty they are in battle. He's already seen what they did to the Amalekites. And he's heard tell of a prophet that's similar to the prophet Moses, somebody who speaks to a god that he doesn't happen to worship, but that's okay. He's not, he's not picky. Balak does hear that whatever, whatever Balak decrees will come to pass and whatever he says will happen ends up happening. So that's, that's Balaam. I'm sorry, Balak hears that about Balaam. And so he decides that he wants Balaam to prophesy against Israel. And he thinks this sort of thing is for purchase. So that tells you a little bit about who Balak is. Number one, he's a, he's a pagan king. He doesn't mind worshiping Jehovah among his other gods. And he believes that, like the priests of his gods, the words of Balaam are probably up for hire. And so it's a question of convincing a man to do something that he may not want to do. And that's Balak's perspective on what occurs next. So he sends some of his trusted advisors to visit Balaam. 
And they say, hey, we, we have this nation coming in and we want you to come curse them. Or as, or as it says in the Bible, curse me this people, curse me them. And Balaam says, well, listen, I can't go beyond the word of the Lord. Now, the context so far would lead us to believe a couple of things. Well, let me let me finish what happens that night. So he, he says, let me check with God and I'll let you know what God says, but I'm not going to go beyond the word of the Lord. So he goes and talks to God and the scriptures say, God talked to Balaam and said, no, you can't curse the Israelites. They are a blessed people. And how could you curse them if I have blessed them? So Balaam comes back in the morning and says, there's no way I'm going to curse Israel. God told me no, and you guys should go. So far, nothing wrong with Balaam's behavior. Secondly, we, we can guess from the context, Balaam might not have been just a simple prophet, but might have actually had the sealing power. Now, you recall in the Book of Mormon, the prophet Third Nephi, after years of faithfulness, God finally comes to him and says, what thou sealest in heaven and on earth shall be sealed in heaven and what thou breakest on earth shall be broken in heaven. And in other words, he gave him the power to use, to say words as if from God's own mouth. I don't know whether it's true that Balaam had been given this gift from God, but it would be interesting if he had, because that would make a lot more sense as to why Balak made it such a priority to have Balaam come and say these words. Now, there's another reason why I think that this might have been the case, and that's because Balaam was afraid to say anything against the word of God, and it was more, he obviously had, as we'll discover, he obviously had one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. And so he he did care a lot about what Balak thought and the things that Balak could do for him. And it seems like without a really strong compulsion in the other direction, in other words, God telling him, whatever you say, that's what will happen. But I know you will ask nothing contrary to my will. He might have remembered that admonition from God and refused to follow Balak's request. Something to think about. So this story has a few layers, what I, what I consider layers of meaning. And I'll tell the story three times, or I'll, I'll tell it uh, in different segments with different layers involved. And rather than give you a summary up front, uh, we'll talk about the story three different ways. And the first way is what, I, what we already said, the fable. So a fable is, I, I mentioned it maybe as a children's story because it is a story told to children. It's a, it's a story meant to teach a moral lesson, but oftentimes has supernatural elements. And then there's a simple, you know, there's a main character who has a change of heart or who learns something through conduct that every reader can see is flawed. And then there's a moral at the end. And there's often a talking animal in, the, in a fable. So you read this story of Balaam, and here's what happens. After, Balak, after Balaam sent away Balak's first delegation, Balak sends a, se- a second one. And this time he says, you know, he, he searched for men who were even more honored. So the, the, the people that Balak sent the second time were much more important. And I'm sorry, we start in uh, Numbers chapter 22. And the, uh, 
So the second time these men come into Balaam's house, and once again, he says, he sent again, it says Balak, this is Numbers 22, verse 15. Balak sent yet again princes more and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said unto him, Thus saith Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me, for I will promote thee unto very great honor. There's that word again, honorable. The princes are honorable, and Balak is promising honor to Balaam. I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me this house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. So initially, Balaam is extremely valiant. However, he's already been, this prayer has already been answered. God didn't say, you know, right now I don't feel like letting you curse the nation of Israel, but ask me again later. What we have in the scriptures is, this is the answer that God gave unto Balaam. Thou shalt not go with them, thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. So that's Numbers 22, verse 12. That seems like a pretty unequivocal answer. It seems pretty cut and dry. Now, Balaam asks again, and we have a modern-day analog for, for this kind of behavior, and, it w- and what was brought immediately to my mind was Joseph Smith asking God, and it was for the similar reasons. He wanted to let Martin Harris take the first pages of his manuscript that he translated. And Martin Harris wanted to prove to his family that he wasn't throwing his money away, that there really was an ancient record, that Joseph was translating. And Joseph really cared because he he didn't have enough faith in the Lord to realize God is capable of doing his own work. He thought, this guy's financing what we're doing, where he's financing the work of translation, and therefore I owe him more than I owe God. So he asked God, can I send this work with... Well, he didn't think that at first. He thought, I'm sure God will let me loan him the manuscript. And he asked God, and God said no. And Joseph Smith actually asked three times before he got a yes, but he eventually did get a yes. And so that's... that's it's not actually a precedent. Obviously, the story of Balaam happened long before, but most LDS listeners will have earlier been familiar with the story of Joseph Smith and the lost pages. And so it's, it, it helps to think about that story as you're hearing this. That's exactly what Balaam is doing. He has already received an answer to his prayer and he went back and asked the Lord again for no other reason that he wanted a different answer. I think, I suspect, let's put it that way. I suspect that it might be an indication of God's respect for our agency, that there will be certain times when we do get the answer that we want from God rather than the answer that he would say. If we keep asking and keep saying, hey, this is really what I want, then God might eventually say yes. And the yes doesn't mean that's my will. The yes means that's your will, and I now approve of you going and finding out what the consequences are of following your own will. It's a little bit of a tricky question because what form did this answer take? Did he receive some sort of spiritual confirmation? Did he receive the burning in his bosom that it was right? Or did he just hear words? Um, What form did the revelation that Abraham had when he was asked by God to sacrifice his son Isaac? 
Now, God didn't mean for Abraham to actually do it. What he meant was for Abraham to decide to do it, to decide that following God was more important than having a son and even keeping his wife happy or any of it. There was nothing that even even all of the promised blessings that he'd received from God were not as important as following God now today. I don't know what form that revelation would have needed to take before Abraham stopped questioning it. You and I can get revelations, we can get promptings, we can get feelings all the time. And they're usually gentle things that we know are right, and therefore there's no real need to question. The only need to question is, does God really care if I do that right now, or was it just my own idea of something that might be a good idea? But there's, but usually when we have a prompting, it's not, that sounds wrong, but God's telling me it's right. So in this, in this instance, it's, it's not that. It's, so it must have been a stronger revelation, or I, I'm curious about what form it would have taken with Balaam, because it contradicts something that God had said earlier, which was don't go with them. These are blessed people. Don't curse them. Instead, uh, he he went for a different answer, and this time he gets it. So in uh, in verse 20 of Numbers 22, God came unto Balaam at night, this is the second time around, and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. And Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. Here's the next verse. Numbers 22, 22, and God's anger was kindled because he went. So God says, go, un- if they come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But his anger was kindled. And that doesn't sound like God tell- telling you to do something and then get mad when you, when you actually do it. Um, so I suspect there's some shade of meaning that has been lost in translation here. He said, he probably said more like s- something like, um, if you, if thou wilt go with them and, uh, and make sure you don't go any farther. You know, if you've got to go, then go ahead, but make sure you don't make sure you don't say anything that I wouldn't have you say. And then it would be totally reasonable for his, his anger to be kindled. In any case, this is where the fable part begins. The, the ass that Balaam is riding, he's riding his donkey and it's a journey of probably a few days and uh, the, the donkey sees an angel. And this immediately brings to my mind the question of, well, how do we know what the donkey saw? Because the donkey didn't write this story. Well, well, we'll hear more about that. We'll talk more about that later. But um, three times, the donkey is blocked by an angel with a sword drawn. And on the third time, Balaam gets off as if to beat his, or gets off and beats his donkey. And then the donkey speaks to him and says, why are you beating me? I'm, you know, there's, am I not the same donkey who's always obeyed you? Didn't you think there might be something different this time? And Balaam says, yeah, you know, he's obviously stunned that his donkey is talking to him. And then he sees the angel. Well, this follows also a well-known pattern in the scriptures where God has to speak three times before people are ready for the answer or for are ready to understand and hear what he's saying. And that happens to Balaam here. So he looks up and sees the angel and the angel says, if your donkey hadn't turned aside, then I would have slain thee. And, you know, Balaam had been threatening his donkey. If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. And then the angel appears and says, no, if I had a sword in my hand, if your donkey hadn't turned aside, then I'd be killing you right now and leaving your donkey alive. And Balaam immediately 
feels awful and he says, okay, what do you want? Do you want me to go home? So he knows what God wants. He says, oh, you want me to go back? He immediately goes right to what he thinks God wants. And this time the angel doesn't give him that, the, the, that way out. The angel says, no, go ahead. But again, make sure that you are following the commandments of the Lord and not, and not saying more or less. Again, the title of the lesson, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord. Well, um, so the angel of the Lord says, uh, go with the men. This is verse 35. Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that, shall, that thou shalt speak. So that's the, that's the fabulous or the supernatural part of the story is that his donkey speaks to him and he's already questioned the, the will of God. Now, it's, if I were telling this as a fable, I think Balak would be the main character because Balak had already been given a no and he kept pushing. And what happens? Well, Balaam gets to Balak's headquarters and, and he says, let's go up in a high place. Let's, let's sacrifice to God. So he, he sacrifices seven bullocks and seven rams. And then he receives a vision. And in that vision, he is told a specific blessing on the house of Israel. And he pronounces it. And Balak says, what are you doing? I brought you here to curse them. And he says, look, I told you when God, I, I warned you twice when when God tells me what to say, I can't go beyond that. Well, come, let's go to another mountainside and let's sacrifice again. So they do that. And now try it again. Maybe this time God will let you curse them. And he tries it again. He blesses them again with a different blessing. And they're all, the blessings are about how powerful Israel is and how no one can stand against them. Third time, Balak says, let's go to an, another hilltop. And this time, Again, Balaam blesses Israel and Balak is really mad and starts complaining more. And um, that's where the fable sort of ends. And the moral is when God speaks, try to listen the first time, you idiot, uh, unless you unless you want something you didn't you didn't bargain for. Um, now, if you if you've ever studied Shakespeare, the. The second, in my opinion, the second layer of this story is a real Shakespearean tragedy. Because um, think about the, the tragedy of Julius Caesar, where Caesar is a, is a powerful man who, and Brutus is his friend, and they both have everything going for him. But Caesar, they, they each have a tragic flaw, and Caesar's tragic flaw is pride. And so he, about halfway through, and there's some controversy about who's the hero of the of the play, but it doesn't really matter. They both, they both have this flaw that they, that they show evidence of. And in, as a result, they go from being favored of God and fortunate in life to being pitiable and miserable and abandoned and alone and eventually dead. And that's, that's the nature of a tragedy on a Shakespearean scale. And the same thing happens to Balaam. So we saw already the way in which he obeyed the Lord, and we saw already the way in which he disobeyed the Lord. So here he is with Balak, and then right after this story where he blesses Israel, we find out that the Israelites go to war with the Midianites. Well, first of all, the, the, the Israelites begin to sin with the Midianites. And that means that exactly what Moses predicted. He says, don't go in, don't let your 
sons marry their daughters because what will happen is their daughters will tempt your sons to sacrifice unto their gods, to go whoring after their gods, and eventually uh, they'll fall away from the faith and they will break the first commandment, the, the important one which I gave you, which is thou shalt have no other gods before me. Not to mention they'll break the commandment of sexual purity. Now the the specific commandment in the Ten Commandments is no adultery, but obviously fornication is closely related, and that's what the Israelites begin begin to do with the Midianites. Now it's not clear if uh, the the Israelite women were also tempted by the Midianite men, but what we what we have in the scriptures is that the for sure the Israelite men were tempted by the Midianite women. Um, then they go to war. So the first, there's a purging. The Israelites suffer greatly because of this. And again, as, as has happened so many times throughout their wanderings, the Israelites have plagues, they have destructions come upon them, and they're weakened in battle. They cannot prevail until they cleanse the inner vessel. But this story isn't really about the Israelites. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but that's, I'll just give you the quick version of that because we want to get back to what happened to Balaam. Well, there are only a couple more verses that deal with Balaam, but they're powerful ones. The first thing we learn is that finally the Israelites are blessed once they sort of repent or get rid of the sin from inside their numbers. Then they have a battle against the Midianites where they prevail. And in that battle, Balaam is slain. And then later on, the commentary is given that he told Balak how to tempt the children of Israel away from following the commandments of God. Now, that is the work of Satan. Not only is it not the work of a prophet, but to teach someone how to make someone else do evil, that is purely the work of Satan. And Balaam fell from the highest of heights, someone perhaps we don't know, who might have had the sealing power, but certainly enjoyed a very close and easy communion with God, where the will of God could be revealed to him almost effortlessly, or at least very, very quickly. And he fell all the way to the point where he was counseling people on how to tempt others to sin, and eventually was abandoned by God and by Satan and was, and was killed ignominiously in battle. That's, that's a powerful layer of this story, is the tragedy layer. Um, and I, as I usually do, I thought, well, what is, what is there about this lesson? Because this, this lesson seems to, seemed to me originally, I thought this is a pretty simple story. It's obvious, the lessons from it, it's, it's obvious to the point of being like a fable, where the lesson is said explicitly at the end. You read it and you know immediately what the meaning is. But as I usually do with the lesson in the, in the manual, I think, what can this particular lesson teach me about Jesus Christ? And if I ask myself that question long enough, I can usually find an answer. And uh, there, there are probably dozens of answers to that question. One that I thought of was that I realized that Balaam, so the third layer is that Balaam is a type of Christ. And I don't mean he's a type of Christ in the sense that we need we we can learn exactly what Christ is like by looking at Balaam. But 
he, there's enough there for a comparison and there are enough differences for a contrast. So I think it's a profitable line of inquiry. So let's talk a little bit about that third layer, which is the type of Christ. First of all, when Christ began his ministry, he started it with a fast and he was caught, he was caught up into a high place by Satan and he was tempted three times. And the same thing happened with Balaam. Christ and Balaam were tempted by someone who had long desired them to do something evil. And they both prophesied, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but, um, and they both resisted three times. So Christ resisted Satan's temptations, and um, one of those temptations was for, for power, great power. I will give you all of the riches of the world. I'll give you all the power you could ever want. And had Satan prevailed and gotten Christ to succumb to temptation, he would have foiled, he would have proven himself to be more powerful than God. He would have foiled the very, frustrated the very plan of God, the most powerful of all. So I actually have no trouble believing that Satan's promises were 100% real. He would absolutely have given Christ, uh, quote unquote, given Christ the all of the power that was in his power to grant. He would have given him the, the honors of men. He would have given him accolades and political power. Who knows? He might have even risen to conquer the empire of Rome. He could have been at the head of armies had Christ chosen to. And, and I would imagine that Satan showed him all of those possibilities as part of the temptation. And Christ resisted it, as we know. And that was a similar temptation to what was offered to Balaam. And we see the word, uh, if, I, if I read this chapter, if I read these chapters verse by verse, you would see several times the word honor shows up. And he again and again tempts Balaam with the honors of men. So I send honorable princes and I would give you thine honor. And when, uh, when Balaam is done praying and he hasn't, he hasn't blessed Moab, but instead he's blessed Israel, then Balak says to him, I'll find the exact verse, but he says, it's too bad that you followed God because you could have had a lot more honor. And that was, that was really interesting. But the verse that we're talking about is verses 10 and 11 of Numbers 24. This is after the third time. Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam. And he smote his hands together, and Balak said unto Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. Therefore, now flee thou to thy place. I thought to promote thee unto great honor. But lo, the Lord hath, and the Lord is in small caps here, so we know the word that was translated there is Jehovah. But, behold, but lo, Jehovah hath kept thee back from honor. So he says honor twice, and He's saying, I, I, I was going to advance you in my country. And he's telling him, get out of my land. Well, we learn later, Balaam wasn't kicked out of the land. So he must have had a change of heart pretty soon after this. Because if he'd, if he'd delayed in changing his mind, Balak would have kicked him all the way out of Moab. But instead, later on, when, when the Midianites who were mixed there with are killed... 
Balaam is with him. Rather than being back in Haran where he comes from, he's with this nation where he had been promised honor. So we can guess that he eventually succumbed to the temptation. So the part, and here's, and here's where we can see ourselves. We can see Christ in Balaam. We can see that he was tempted three times and resisted, and he was offered more honor than you and I, comparatively at least, would, could probably expect to be offered in our lifetime. It's a deal with the devil, the classic um, selling your soul for everything you ever wanted and gaining the world at the price of your soul. Here's a king telling you, I will, I will, whatever you say, I will give to you if, if all you will do is go against the commandments of God. Uh, rarely in our lives is it so dramatic, but in Christ's life, it, it certainly was. And Balaam resisted. He was strong in that moment. So that's one way in which he was like Christ, but then how is he like us? Well, um, we have to watch ourselves because there might be times when we resist a temptation that we thought was strong and then we get really proud of ourselves and we think, okay, this is, this is fine. You know what I can do since I'm so good at resisting temptation? I can stick around and I don't have to leave Moab right away. You know, I've just been offered all of this power and I didn't give in. So obviously... Satan's got nothing on me. And we stay in Moab. And so there's the contrast. Earlier we had the comparison, and here's a lesson where we look at we look at what Balaam did, and we realize even a great prophet, if he stays around temptation, if he sticks around, now what did Christ say at the end? Instead of saying, Okay, tell me what else you can offer me, Satan, oh, see, look, I I withstood that when I resisted that temptation as well. What else you got? Okay, I resisted that too. No, Christ said, get thee behind me, Satan. In other words, you, you don't have any power over me. And, it's, and the second that my, my agency is satisfied and I have been given opposition to righteousness, then I'm no longer going to even pay any attention to your temptations. And I've already decided forever. So I'm never going to go back to thinking about it. Now, Christ did that far more, obviously, far more perfectly than any of us could. But it's a, it's a wonderful lesson for us. And Balaam is the counterexample. Balaam also was wonderful at resisting powerful temptations. And he wasn't so wonderful at avoiding future temptations. One of the parts of the story I left out is, after he blesses Israel three times, then... Balak gets mad at him, tells him to leave. And then Balaam goes into a vision. And I can just imagine him with his eyes closed. There are powerful words here. And I've, been, I've tried to read this from two perspectives. One of a Jewish person who doesn't believe in Christ. And, and one from either a modern Christian or a modern LDS perspective. But he talks about, in verse 17 of Numbers 24, he talks about what will happen. Uh, he introduces it like this in in verse 14, he says, Behold, I go unto my people. Come therefore, and I will advertise thee what this people shall do to thy people in the latter days. And he took up his parable. It says this many times. And uh, what, the, what, what usually follows that is some sort of prophecy about the distant future. Not the days of Balaam and not the days of Balak and not even the, the people of Moab as they know it then. But the distant future. In verse 17, 
Balaam says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. In other words, this this isn't close to happening today. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. Well, uh, he goes on to prophesy about all of the ways that the wicked will be, that the that the nations around uh, that are adjoining what became ancient Israel will be will be treated in the latter days. And I see this as having more of a spiritual, because obviously Christ didn't come to smite those people; he came to save everyone, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Um, but so I see this as having more of a spiritual fulfillment, which is that those those people that are on the borders of righteousness will eventually have to be smitten by the Most High. And he talks, he, he uses more military language as he has been in his other three visions about how out of Jacob, in verse 19, out of Jacob shall come, he that have shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. And he talks about other nations that won't be left standing. What this means is that Balaam is bearing powerful testimony of Christ and how he will lift up those who follow him and he won't be able to lift up those. Those who can't follow him won't have any protection. And that's another type of Christ. Christ, although he avoided calling for his own glory, he was not ever ashamed to testify of the role that he had been blessed to fill. And he bore testimony of God and God's anointed and how what what a great and marvelous thing that God was doing for the children of men. So there's another similarity between Balaam and Christ. And then very soon after, we don't know Balaam's path after that. We just know where he ended up. But it's obvious because Balak was the king and Balak was telling him to get lost. It's obvious that he changed his mind pretty quickly. And... Balak says, that's too bad. The Lord hath kept thee back from honor because I had such good things coming here, uh, coming, coming to you here, if you'd, if you'd just done what I wanted you to do. There are a couple, well, there are three that I could find, three mentions of Balaam in the New Testament. Um, and the most poignant, I think, is the one in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. It says that Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. And that to me is the crux of the entire analogy between Balaam and Christ. So it wasn't that Balaam didn't didn't know temptation when he saw it, and it wasn't that he couldn't understand the word of the Lord and was incapable of obeying it. It was that, and it wasn't even that he didn't love the things of God. He obviously had to. But he had not decided that he didn't want the wages of unrighteousness. So I thought I'd make a list. And the list isn't all that long, actually. There are only a few ways in which Satan, a few general ways in which Satan pays us. And they all seem to fall into a few categories. And honor is one of them. So honor is obviously a positive thing in one sense, but not in the sense that Balak was using it. And he was offering Balaam abundant honor, and he sent princes with more honor than the once. And what he means is fame, notoriety, popularity. He means that people are talking about them, that people admire them, but not for 
the fact that they have good character, they admire them because they're wealth, wealthy, they're powerful. So what Balaam, what Balak was promising Balaam was, I'll give you a position. I'll give you a position of power. You'll have power over other people. You can tell them what to do. You might, you might have a lot of wealth. You might have recognition. People will see you coming and they might say, here comes Balaam. He's the one who helped us against the Israelites. Isn't he great? So honors, money, wealth. Obviously, Balak had a lot of this to bestow. And Balak wasn't a righteous man. He didn't get his, he didn't get his money by working for it. He got it by being king, which means that he was, in that day and age, he was riding on the backs of his people. And so it's ill-gotten gain, basically, that Balaam was willing to trade his soul for. Lust. Now, how many people have traded away their birthright for lust? So if you, if you have, a, a lot of times people want, what they want is the influence, the honor that Balak was promising, but they want it in order to satisfy the lust of their heart, which could be sexual lust, or as they speak in the scriptures, the lusts of, the, of this world. Or they might use lust to get power. It doesn't really matter which one is more important to them. Uh, it, it could be that they care more about the honor, the popularity, the notoriety, and being admired by the world. And they'll, use, they'll take lust if they can get it. Or they might care about satisfying their lust and they'll use their notoriety to get to where they can do that doesn't really matter which one's more important to you. Satan will use either if he's, if he's able. And then Balaam did something interesting because he, he did indeed teach true doctrine. At the tops of these mountains that he went, he gave the visions of God and, and God was really speaking through him. And then he taught the most important thing that any prophet ever teaches. He taught of the mission and of the divinity of the Son of God. So he had, he had the doctrine of God, and he, and he understood it. Then what did he teach the Midianites? So he understood that the Israelites were blessed because they had a higher standard of living. Uh, and I don't mean material wealth. I mean they, they held themselves to a higher standard. They had been given the Ten Commandments. They had been raised up by God from the nations around them as a nation that followed ethical monotheism. In other words, God is all-powerful, and God created the entire earth. There's only one of him, and God is good. God wants us to be good. This was a totally new idea, and the Israelites were doing it. And Balaam taught their enemies to make them stop doing it. And from the Jewish perspective, Israel, the nation of Israel, by this time in the book of Numbers, Israel was God's third attempt at creating a righteous people. Remember, God's first attempt was Adam and Eve. The second attempt was Noah. And both times he had to destroy. He had to sacrifice a ton of his work and he, then people ended up suffering and dying. And God didn't want it to happen again. 
Uh, and this, this leads me to what I hope won't be too long of a digression, but I think it's worth talking about. And that is, a lot of people feel like the Old Testament and the New Testament have two different gods. And I'll explain that. Uh, they feel like the God of the Old Testament is a vengeful God, and he's a God that has different rules. The, he's a God of justice, and the God of the New Testament is the God of mercy. I think that that idea is worth talking about a little bit. It, it certainly does seem that way. And I think even Latter-day Saints could be justified in holding that opinion. But we also read, and especially we read in the Book of Mormon, but this is found throughout the scriptures, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how do we reconcile those two ideas? Now, uh, in, this, in these chapters, we have a perfect example we can use to think about this. And that is, during the time when the Midianites are tempting the Israelites, one of the Israelites has the gall, let's say, to bring his Midianite girlfriend, not only in the camp of the Israelites, but he brings them, he brings them into the holy tent, as it says. So he's willing not only to, he's, he's willing not only to allow his own soul to be corrupted, but he, he doesn't care at all about the, the holy parts of the nation of Israel. He's willing to bring this woman with whom he's sinning into the, into the tabernacle. And this is in Numbers chapter 25. Um, and he, Behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman, woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. So people are weeping outside of the tabernacle. And here shows up this man with a Midianitish woman. And after this, Phinehas, the one who... Uh, who slew the man with a, ja with a javelin and his girlfriend, he was rewarded by God for that act. And, that, and we read that today and we think, wow, God, God is violent and God rewards other people to, for violence? I mean, how can, how can that be the same as the same God as the one that Jesus Christ talks about and uh, obeying the same commandments that Jesus Christ talks about? And there are a few things to consider. First of all, this is God's third attempt. And it's not as if, in the time of Christ, God had an established nation of people who really, really cared about following the scriptures. Say what you will about the scribes and the Pharisees. Their problem was not ignoring the scriptures or apathy about the will of God. Their problem was looking beyond the mark. So they, they were willing to kill Jesus if you remember, because he picked some wheat off of the staff on the Sabbath day. So it wasn't that they didn't care at all about the commandments of God. They cared about, they cared too much about the tiny details and not as much, not enough about the inner things. And so Christ lived in a very different context. 
he was able to teach a higher law because people had already internalized the lesser law. But at this time, the, the lesser law was still very new. And I, I perceive the nation of Israel, the ancient nation of Israel, as being on a razor's edge between existing and not existing. They keep going, they keep going back and, and pining for the days in which they lived among wicked people. They have no righteousness in their hearts. The, the spirit of God, the spirit of the commandments has not yet entered into them. And so God has to be very careful. He, he can't allow a lot, of, a lot of questing and wondering among them. If he does, he'll lose his, he'll lose his third chance and he'll have to start again a fourth time. And it, as you remember, he was willing, and rather than see the whole earth be perverted forever, he was willing to let everyone die in the flood. And that's because the earth can never get better if parents are going to teach their children to be wicked generation after generation. Instead, he has to start with righteous people. And so he limited the population of the earth to just the family of Noah so that at least they'd have a righteous start. And it didn't take too long before they he had to give up on that. So then he had to go to try to create a nation. And this is what God said to the nation of Israel. I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the word holy means set apart. Well, the, the Israelites were not yet fully set apart. They weren't quite different from the people around them or as different as God needed them to be. And so therefore God's, and as Nephi says in the Book of Mormon, the, the law of Moses was a commandment of outer, was a, of carnal commandments and outer observances because they were such a stiff-necked people. So that might help understand why this kind of thing occurred. Secondly, if you, if you re just recognize that all of those people at the, of this time are dead now anyway. So we think, wow, that's so violent, that's so, that's so final that God would allow someone to die. But what happened to those Midianites? They'd never received the truth. And so the atonement covers their repentance and allows them, even though they have to wait longer than someone who received the gospel during their lifetime, it allows them to receive the gospel in, in the world of spirits and repent and receive forgiveness and exaltation. Those people of the Midianites, even the ones who are tempting the Israelites, there's no reason to think they can't end up in the celestial kingdom. I shouldn't say there's no reason, but I don't, I don't find it convincing the idea that they can't end up in the celestial kingdom. I think plenty of them will. And so when, when God sees someone die, the only time it's a tragedy for God is when that person might have repented. That's why, incidentally, that's why murder is such a terrible sin is because it cuts short someone's opportunity for repentance. But when someone is ripe in iniquity... And God knows with his perfect foreknowledge, he knows that person is not going to repent. That's what, they call, that's what the scriptures call ripe in iniquity. And when someone has ripened in iniquity, then allowing them to live longer just allows them to put more sins on their eternal tally. And that makes it worse for them. And at that point, it's a death is a blessing. So those are some things to think about as we read in these scriptures. It was certainly a more uh, violent time, and it was one where... Everyone probably had been part of a, had seen a battlefield at some point where now in today's world, very few of us would ever see a battlefield. So that's, that's an interesting, I wanted to make that, I think that 
that digression fits well into this lesson. And if, you, if you've ever thought that about the Old Testament, you might consider that Jesus, when he lived, and even the Nephites, they had a different context. They had a people who had been raised in righteousness, whereas at this point in the Israelites' history, they lived among one of the most warlike civilizations the world has known, and they were fighting constantly and surrounded by people who were trying to build empires. And, and this was the center of it. The land of Mesopotamia is the land that everyone fought over from the Hittites to the Romans to the Mongols. For thousands of years of human history, that was the prime spot of land where every, where every other land met. And they all wanted to conquer it. And so, of course, they lived a violent life. And the agency of man wouldn't have it any other way. There's no way that Satan would allow, because it's at the center of civilization, Satan wouldn't allow them to have peace there. It, it's contrary to his agency to work with man, that there would be peace there for thousands of years. It's going to be a, a hotbed of violence. However, that's why the, the Nephites were removed from other civilized nations, from, from other civilizations. Uh, that's why when Christ was alive, the relative peace of the Roman Empire and the long-standing spirituality of the Jewish Empire, as flawed as it was, allowed him to teach the higher law that he did. Well, back to Balaam. He is a perfect example of someone following the letter of the law. He received the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord was, don't say any words that I don't tell you to say. Okay, you can go, but make sure that you don't, make sure that you don't say more or less than I tell you. And Balaam did that. He resisted the powerful temptations. However, and I, and I think this is important, this is the important part of the, the lesson in, in this story for all of us. There's something about the love of God's will that hadn't fully penetrated his heart. Now, this life, knowing we know this life is a test. We know that we came here not for God to put us through easy experiences, ones that we know absolutely that we can pass. But as Lehi taught in the book of Nephi, book of First Nephi, there must be an opposition in all things. And the higher we want to go, in other words, the higher the kingdom of glory we, we aspire to, the harder that test has to be. God has to put us through the toughest test that we have the slightest chance of passing so that we can attain the highest glory that we have the slightest chance of obtaining. Any less would be contrary both to his justice and to his mercy. And so Balaam, you think, well, why did God tell him? Why didn't God just say? Why didn't the angel just say, okay, yeah, you want to go home? Go back home. No, Balaam aspired to being one of the great spirits in the celestial kingdom, in God's heavenly kingdom forever. And in order to deserve that glory, he had to prove that he could not only follow the will of God when he was strongly tempted, but also endure to the end. And unfortunately, and, and God is going to do that same thing with us. He's going to find a difficult test. And if we pass that one, he's going to find the next test for us. And it's going to be more difficult. And it might be easier in some way, but it might be more difficult in another way. And 
he's going he's gonna to give us an opportunity to prove ourselves. As he said to Abraham, let us prove them now herewith to see if they'll do all the things the Lord, their God has commanded them because we want those rewards. That is the only way to, to deserve those rewards. And we, don't, and we don't deserve them of ourselves. But in, in one sense, uh, let me put it this way. That's the only way to choose those rewards. We think we want the celestial kingdom. We say we want, uh, yeah, anybody could say, yeah, I really want to go to heaven and be with God and live the kind of life he lives. And God says, no, you don't. Because your life is not in accordance with a celestial law, as Joseph Smith taught, he who cannot abide a celestial law cannot abide a celestial glory. So in other words, you you actually wouldn't choose to go to the celestial kingdom until you're living that kind of life. And God is so patient with us. He will lead us by the hand along the way. And we say we want to go to the celestial kingdom. He knows we don't really want it yet. But he's willing to be patient with us and teach us until we do want it. He's going to give us a little bit more desire. And then we have a little bit more obedience. And the problem with Balaam was that he didn't have the love of the commandments. He didn't have the love of obedience. He didn't have the love of the will of God planted deeply enough in his heart. Instead, he loved the wages of unrighteousness, as Peter said. How many of us have completely purged ourselves of the, of the love of the wages of unrighteousness? Nobody. So this is a warning. This is a cautionary tale to everyone who thinks that obedience to God's commandments without any underlying love for God is enough. Because at some point that test will come where that love is missing. And that's, that love is all important. Abraham passed the test, but that was, you can see, that, that test was designed to find out whether Abraham really loved the will of God more than he loved everything else. And Balaam was given that test and failed. You and I will have those tests and they'll be ever increasing in difficulty or in complexity or in, in the amount that we're given of information about whether this is actually a test at all. And so we'll be confused. We might, we might not have faith at that moment. It might hit us at the wrong time. We might have, not have access to God's spirit when it comes. And God will find ways to make it more difficult than the last one. And then when we pass that one, there'll be another one. Until we've finally shown ourselves faithful in all things. Now, is it worth it? Of course it's worth it. Didn't you see what our Savior went through? Haven't you read about that? He went through everything. And now he sits on a throne of glory that will last forever. And he offers that to us, and we don't have to, we don't have to do anything near as difficult. So I pray that as we strive for earthly obedience, and we, we want to pay attention to the letter of the law of God's commandments, that we take time to allow the love of God and the love of obedience and the love of his commandments to penetrate our hearts. And we think about why we're doing it. And we think about how grateful we are. Instead of how much we hate our trials, we think about how grateful we are for the opportunity to live and, and receive the blessings of God for strength to get through them. And maybe that, maybe that perspective, maybe that viewpoint might just help some of us. It won't help us all with every trial, but it might help some of us with some of our trials that we realize 
my attitude could change. I could have more love for God right now, and it might make it a little bit easier to avoid that future temptation rather than sticking around in Moab. And I pray we'll be able to do that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.